Oh, good morning. So this has been one of those weeks for me. I don't know if you guys um, um, have them where every single night is filled with something, you know, and then I get to Friday and there's this big wedding for the weekend. Um, I didn't fly to London or anything, but I had it right here instead. And uh, it was an awesome, humble wedding, but it just, like, it was this very, very crowded weekend. And, and it was one of those weeks where when it comes to what am I going to do on the weekend for the message, it kind of got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And when I started to dig into it, I, I realized, I thought, you know what, there's, there's something on the line this weekend. And I'm just giving you a, a fair warning before we start, I, that I, I think that as I got into it, the, the, the stakes are high, that there's, there's things I think are going to take place in our hearts and our room that maybe God wants and other forces don't want. Maybe we don't want to deal with it as we go through today's um, passage. So we're in, we're in the very like last two weeks of a series we call Change of View. Our prayer has been from the beginning, God, would you change the way I see things? Would you change the way I view the world? Would you help me understand so that, so that I can think the way you want me to think, so I can live the way you want me to live, so I can love the way you want me to love? And we said that this is, this is the key to what we, what we call spiritual growth is actually learning to see the way God wants us to see, think the way he wants us to think, and love and live the way he wants us to love and live. And that's spiritual growth. It's not about knowing the most. It's not about going to church the most often. It's not, it's not even about doing religious things like praying a whole bunch more than anyone else or uh, reading your Bible all the time. It is, it is an internal change in who we are and how we see. So um, sometimes, by the way, people ask me, Doug, why do you pray at the start of every message? And, it's, and my answer is, because I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous that I'm going to get in the way of what God wants to do. And I'm a little nervous that our, how busy we are and how full our lives are, that it'll get in the way of God wants to do. And I just like to make a deal in the very beginning of every message almost um, to say, God, uh, you know, we, we want to be open to you. So let's, let's do that again. Let's pray. God, exactly that. We want to be open to you. We don't want my busy week to get in the way of what you want. We don't want our, our own busy lives to get in the way. We don't want our resistance to get in the way, especially when a message is maybe just a little uncomfortable. And we don't want to hear a message that we're not meant to hear. We want to hear from you. We don't want, we don't want guilt. We don't want to be pushed around. We, we want to be invited to something different and new from, or something important from our Heavenly Father. So we invite you to speak to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we've been going through the Beatitudes. I hope by now you know what those are. Those are all those statements that Jesus made to start with, blessed are the, or blessed are those who. And um, we're on the seventh one out of, out of eight. And we already read it this morning. It says, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And I know I've always been focusing on the front part. We're going to do that again today, those who work for peace. But look at the back part just for a moment. For they will be called the children of God. Whatever comes in front of that, don't you want in on the last part? Don't you want in on the last? They will be called the children of God. In other words, today is DNA stuff from God's perspective. (laughs) This is what it looks like to be like me. You're going to be called my kids because people are going to see this in you. They're going to be called the children of God. Look at them. They're, they're behaving in a way consistent with their father. And, and the connection is they work for peace. Now, I grew up um, 
in the 60s. And it was a day and age when these new translations were just starting to be, it was kind of controversial, and you know, because, but we still had the King James Bible in the church I went to, you know, even though it was a Methodist church as a kid, they hadn't quite got that out and gotten the new, um, whatever it was, in. I think it was the Living Bible next or something like that. So, uh, but I memorized this in the King James Version. I have to be honest with you, there's certain passages in Scripture, Psalm 23 is one of them, this is another one, where my heart goes, even though I like the New Living Translation that we use, my heart goes, yeah, but the King James, it's, it's better for this one. And this is, so let me just give you the King James. Blessed are the peacemakers. I know it said those who work for peace and the other. Blessed are the peacemakers. I really like that. Blessed are those who make peace, the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And um, that's the passage we're going to be talking about today. But before we talk about it, I'm going to tell you how we're going to end the message. We're going to end with a question. And it's the question is, is going to be exactly this question. Where do you need to be a peacemaker? Which part of your life, who is it, that you go, how do I engage in this making of peace? How do I be a, a, a peacemaker? Now, when we look at the passage and we ask about peacemakers, I have to be, remind all of us that context matters. Historical context, literary context, what do I mean by that? Well, we live in the 21st century. So when I say the word peacemaker, we may have lots of different imagery in our, in our mind. For some of those of you who are, who are into video games, there's a video game called Peacemaker. Or maybe it's the Peacemaker, but it's Peacemakers, I don't know, because I'm not into it like you are, so I don't know, right? There's a movie out that came out years ago called the Peacemaker, right? Now, there's one more Peacemaker that came to my mind, um, and it's from the 1800s. Anybody got a guess? How about now? Do you have a guess? It's a gun. It's, it's a gun they called the Peacemaker, and I'm looking at that thing, and I'm just thinking, that is so ironic. Why would anybody call a Peacemaker? Maybe the rest in Peacemaker, you know, but the Peacemaker doesn't make any sense. And then I started to visualize a little bit, well, how would that work? And I think what it could be is like the sheriff has one and he's a new sheriff in town in the old west and he comes into the bar and all the boys are, you know, fighting and frolicking and, and he comes in and he says, boys, you're going to behave yourselves. We ain't going to have no conflict here today. I never used the word ain't, but it seemed appropriate. <laughs> right? And so we're not going to have any conflict today. We're not going to have any fighting and there's not going to be any of this and that and the other thing. And the reason why is because I brought me the peacemaker. Bam, puts it on the table. And everyone in the room goes, ooh, he's going to kill us if we, if, we, if we do these things. And they go, okay, we're going to behave ourselves. Right? Because he's got the peacemaker. The guy with the biggest gun is the one in control of the peace. By the way, isn't that, isn't that sort of like nations? Right? I mean, haven't we been called the police makers of the world almost, you know, kind of a thing that we're going to, we're, we're the ones that are policing the world? Why? It's because the United States, historically speaking, for a long time has had the biggest guns and the biggest, strongest military, right? So we, we end up with the responsibility or maybe we took the responsibility of being the peacemaker. Now, if your friend says, hey, I'm going to be a peacemaker and you're not sitting in church, what goes through your mind then, right? Well, you might be thinking, well, he's saying he's going to join the United Nations or he's going to become a policeman or a trooper because those people, they're, they're peace officers. That's what we... We don't call them, you know, um, crime fighters necessarily. That's saved for Marvel comic books and movies. These people are, they, they keep their office, they keep the peace is, is kind of the idea. And his and friend says, well, I'm going to go across the world on a peacekeeping mission, right? You kind of have an idea of maybe what they might be doing, working with, you know, third world countries where things are volatile and they're going to keep it 
basically comes down to this. We're going to put a gun on the table in the whole nation and we're going to keep the peace, through, peacemaking. Uh, you might think of, if you're involved in other kinds of things, uh, conflict resolution professionals. This is one of the things that came to my mind, like counselors and, and mediators. So if you're having struggles in your marriage and you go, we have no peace in our marriage. All we have is this fighting stuff. And you go, we got to go see somebody. You go to a counselor, right? Or you go to a mediator to, to figure out a conflict and, and a resolution to business deals and, and marriages and families, all those kinds of things, right? So so all of that is in our heads in the 21st century, but it wouldn't have been in the first century. None of them would have been. None of them would have been what Jesus, the people with Jesus heard. And let me just go on record that I, I have a deep respect for all those kinds of peacemakings, right? I'm involved in some of them. Those things are very important, a very big deal. But when we read Blessed Are the Peacemakers, Context matters. It's not what the original hearers would have heard. These people, Jesus went up a mountain. They didn't really even know who Jesus was at the time. He was starting to do miracles and gathered attention. And they went up to the mountain, kind of a flat mountain. And Jesus started to teach them next to the Sea of Galilee on the top of this mountain. And the very first thing he says is, Blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. And he gets to number seven. It's blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So he's speaking to people who might be disciples. They're considering what to do with Jesus as he makes this, this list that we call the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. And we've been studying it. You can go back and listen to the, to the messages online. I encourage you to read the Beatitudes. But here's basically what they are. He says, blessed are the poor because when you're poor, you realize your need for God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they're going to be comforted. And it's kind of a promise. I'm going to be with you. You follow me, I'm going to be with you, and I'll, be, I'll help you through your loss and your pain. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, because they're going to receive mercy. And blessed are the pure-hearted, the ones who have a single and pure motive for what they do. We all fight that. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So we have to wrestle with the key word, and the key word is obvious. It's, it's the word peace, right? But when we hear the word peace, I think we have some, some misconceptions that go, go with it. When I hear the word peace, because I'm old, we've already established that. I remember the 60s. I was just a kid, but there was a group of you, some of you here anyway, were just ahead of me. So you were the people who did this. I never did this because, you know, you, hey, peace, man, right? I think it wasn't really that you wanted peace. I think it was that you found a creative way to tick off your parents with two fingers, right? And... Um, <laughs> It was a rebellion thing in some, some sense of the, of, of the word. But the word peace has misconceptions to it. We think we just tend to fall into some traps. So misconception number one is we tend to think that peace is the absence of violence. As long as nobody's getting hurt, no one, violence is taking place, we have peace. This is, this is the peacemaker thing, right? We, hey, I'll put the gun on the table, nobody's getting hurt, and therefore we have, we have peace. But the truth is, the gun doesn't change anything. It only stops people from getting hurt that day. If, if the McCoys hate the Hatfields and they're in the bar together, just because you got the big gun and they don't hurt each other that day doesn't mean there's peace because underneath they're, they're hating each other. If you go to the Middle East and you start watching what's going on in, in Israel right now, you got the Palestinians and the, and the Israeli conflict over, over land. And I keep listening. I can't figure out if they're both right, both wrong. Both, you know, it's, it's very complicated. They both think they're absolutely right. And if they could go the next two years without anybody getting hurt anywhere, is that two years of peace? 
Or is that two years where, where the conflict has just been pushed underneath action? Right? I don't think that's, that's not peace. That's not resolution. I grew up in a family with two brothers, so my dad could have said that he has three sons. Right? Some of you should be laughing because you're old enough. All right, so my three sons, my dad would have said, when my dad was gone out of the house, we fought a lot. I mean, blood was shed. I was the third youngest. I, I mean, I was the, the youngest of the boys. So I didn't have to, I never got in a fight at school on the playground. I never got in a fight out with friends or people. But at home, I had a lot of fighting going on. I got beat up all the time by my two older brothers. They wouldn't let anybody else beat me up because of my older brothers. I was their personal project, you know. <laughs> when my dad came home, he was bigger than my brothers, and he would, but we all fought. He would, he would go, knock it off. No one's fighting around here, or you're going to be fighting me kind of language, right? That kind of, it wasn't said quite that way, but you understood it, what it meant. And, and there was no fighting when dad was home. But you know what? That wasn't peace. We were still pinching each other. We were crossing those lines, those imaginary lines. Don't cross this line. Oh, yeah, I'm crossing that line. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching all that kind of stuff. We just irritated the heck out of each other, right? And, and because we, we, were, we are all good friends now, my brothers and I, but, but there was war going on. Some of you, um, I've had a couple moms come to me sometimes and just go, you know, Doug, when you talk about your brothers and how you guys used to fight, it just makes me feel so happy. I go, why? She goes, oh, it gives me hope for my children. You know? And yeah, it's, kids are kids. They, they do those things. But here's the point. The absence of violence is not peace. It's the illusion of peace. It's the illu- peace is something deeper and different. Right? Misconception number two. Conflict means there is no peace. Right? So, well, we don't have peace. Why? Because we, we're having conflict. Right? I don't know if you remember this when you were a kid. Let's see. Last night they failed at this miserably, so give it a shot, all right? When you're on the playground as a kid and somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, you want to fight? And you go, yeah, I want to fight. Right? What's their next line? Join the army. That's option number one. What's option number two? Get married. <laughs> you never heard that before? You've the wrong playgrounds. Okay, so, hey, you want to fight? Yeah, I want to fight. You should get married then. I'm thinking, we're just kids. How do we know anything about that, right? But, but here's the thing. They're right. Getting married is a great way to start fighting. Right? Well, why is that? It's because, it's because every couple has conflict. They're not the same person. They have different ideas. They have different histories. They're, they're coming to different values and different personalities. One of the things that we do in our premarital counseling is we devote a whole section to not just communication, but how to handle conflict. You need communication skills but when you're in conflict, communication, you need, it's in the red zone. It's so much harder to communicate well when you're fired up and you're having some conflict going on. And, and so that's what we do. Every, every marriage, my marriage has conflict. Not as much as yours, but we have conflict. <laughs> right? This is just human stuff. I mean, so here's another area, church staff. I mean, wouldn't you think <laughs> we're, we're, all of the being our church staff is called to that. We, we go, I believe God has called me to this. I believe God has opened the door for this mystery. I view, if I work here, you know, I'm going to go, I'm, we're, we're to a very high cause. We're to, to the worship of God, to the honor of God, and to the serving of God. We're going to convince people the, of the reality, the love of God, and, and lead them into becoming fully devoted followers of Christ as we do it ourselves. And, and 
group hug. You know, this is the kind of picture of a staff, right? Can I just tell you, it ain't so. These people have opinions that I have to work on to get them to do it the right way. <laughs> over and over again, I run into that kind of stuff. And, and why is that? It's because, it's because we have different thoughts and different people and the best answers are hammered through, worked through, and sometimes it can be a little bit heated even. That's why when people come to join us on staff or get involved at a high volunteer level, they go, wow, so this is how the sausages are made, right? And they're not sure they want to eat sausage anymore because, because it can be intense. But underneath that, there is peace and there is love and there is commitment because there is a call. The only thing I want you to catch today is no matter what you're doing, where, where your work or your groups you're involved in, conflict is normal and it can be healthy or it can be toxic, right? Think back to the marriage. Healthy conflict, there's going to be conflict. The only question is how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to make peace? How are you going to resolve it? How are you going to move forward? Maybe there's some that, have you ever noticed that old people have the exact same fights over and over and over and over again? Young people are going, yes. Because we could script Lori's parents exactly what they're going to say in a car ride. The same fights happen over and over again. You know what? I think they like it. I've come, become convinced that they like going through the same dialogue. I'm not even sure it's toxic. It's just, it's just how they've come to be, and we probably do the same thing, and we're just not self-aware, but it can be very toxic too. The question is, where is it going to be on that, you know, on, that, on that spectrum? So conflict does not mean there is no peace. It means we're human, and we have to work our way through it. Right? So now let's go, to the, let's go to the text. It says, God blesses those who work for peace who work for peace. He blesses the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Can I tell you that Jesus never said that? He never said the word peace. He didn't speak English. He didn't even say the word that's in in our, if we went back to the original documents of the Greek Bibles, right? It was written in Greek. He probably used a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word would have been shalom. Shalom. You've heard shalom before, right? That's That's not a word you've never, because for, for Israelis in, in that part of the country, it's, that's their greeting, right? They go, shalom, ah, shalom. And that's, we, Minnesota, we go, hey, how are you? And the other person is doing horribly, but they say, fine. And then, because you, you don't really want to know, you're just, it's just a greeting. It's lost its meaning, right? But they do that with shalom. And they, they say it, and maybe, maybe they mean it. And maybe, maybe it's kind of lost its, its meaning. So let's go back to what it really meant. And um, we won't worry about how, how, People in the Middle East are using it right now. But what it meant was this. Shalom didn't just mean peace. It didn't mean peace. But it meant harmony, wholeness, prosperity, wealth, your welfare, your wellness, and tranquility. It's, it's bigger than peace. It's not just getting along with other people. It's getting along with yourself and getting along with God. It's a deep sense of well-being. This is... This is what's in the Hebrew. Peace just doesn't cover it, you know. Hey, peace. It doesn't work. It's shalom. It's deeper. It's more meaningful. And when we say, you know, Jesus was the prince of peace, we have this idea that the whole world should get along, and that's what it means. I don't think that is what it means. It's sure not what we're experiencing, is it? He goes, no, I'm the prince of shalom. I'm the prince, if you reach to me, and you connect with God through me, there's going to be a deeper sense of wellness to your life. Oh, by the way, it doesn't mean you get out of conflict. Think about Jesus for a minute. Did he avoid conflict? Did he get out of conflict? Wasn't he the guy who was flipping tables over? Right? He wasn't straight, oh, you have a wrinkle here. Let me fix that for you. 
he wasn't trying to get along with everybody perfectly. He, he confronted the Pharisees with brutal language. I mean, you know, you whitewashed tombs. You are a bunch of dead things. You worry about the outside of the cup when the inside is dirty. And you, you pick out little specks and swallow whole camels. You're hypocrites, right? I mean, he's attacking them. He wasn't saying, hey, guys, uh, peace. As long as we get along, that's the most important thing. That's, this is not peace at any price. This is, there's an opportunity for shalom. What he wanted for the Pharisees was for them to find shalom through him, this deep sense of, of, of wellness. And when he spoke, he wouldn't have said, blessed are the peacemakers. He would have said, blessed are those who work for shalom, who, work, who experience it, and who pass it on to others this shalom of, of life, this, this wellness, this deepness. Shalom is inseparable from righteousness and justice. We already talked about that in one of the previous Beatitudes, right? But you can't have a deep sense of wellness and walk by with someone who has no shalom and not give a rip. How can you do that? How can I do that? How can we, how, shalom, to have shalom, it, it has to go out from yourself as well. It's, it's, it's a winsome thing. It's a wholesome thing. This is, Jesus said, he's the prince of shalom. It's, it's part of what following Christ is supposed to give us. Being connected to God is supposed to bring more and more shalom into our lives. And the shalom is supposed to leak out of us to other people. So I started thinking about, what, what is he saying? In a sense, when he says, those who work for peace, it's almost like those who want to let it leak, those who put some pressure behind it, go shalom to everybody. And I thought, you know, there's some, some zones. I'm going to use the word work. So there's some shalom work zones. I should have put it on the slide. I didn't. This is just where do we work for peace? Where do we work for shalom? What are the zones of life? And I started to think about my own life, and some of them are really true and some of them not so true quite yet. So here's the first one. I'm, going to give you th- I'm just going to give you three zones, work zones for shalom. The first one is shalom to my world and my community. Right? So this is... This is for people who don't experience shalom. Maybe they live in a part of a place where it's just not safe and, and they can't have shalom because the anxiety levels are so high where they live. This is a peacekeeping mission. I think, I think it's awesome when people do that. I think it's godly to be involved in those kinds of things. And there's a whole bunch of you know, little zones within this world zone and this lack of shalom in the world that I think we can find places to that God's going to bring to some of us to be involved in. You know, the sexism, the racism, the trafficking, the hunger, the poverty, the violence, all those things are just a complete absence of God's shalom. And so, so some of us are going to be called to, we're going to meet people who are in that world, or we may even get involved in that world to reach people with shalom with, against those kinds of, of powers. Those are powers in our world, but they represent people the addicted, the weak, the homeless, the innocents, the victims, the mentally ill. And I, those are not complete lists. Those are just five-minute thinking about it lists. Right? You could add to that, to that list. Some of us are going to be involved in organizations that fight those battles. Some of us are just going to be giving to those organizations. Some of us are going to be involved because we have friends who are involved in those worlds. By the way, in this church we probably have six or seven of them at least represented just on a Sunday morning. This represents a whole zone of, of we, how can I walk by this? This is righteousness and, and justice. How can I walk by it and, and, and not care? So that's the first zone. I, I want 
the peace of God that I have, the shalom of God to leak in and out to others. And I can't live in this world and just go, well, as long as I'm in my little shalom bubble, who cares about anybody else? Let me give you the second zone. Shalom in my relationships. Now I'm talking about my relationships, right? So where does that start? Well, it starts with, with for me, my, my spouse, Lori. Um, we work at shalom. You know those conflicts that we have? We, those are opportunities to become more. Those are op- we can handle them. They can become toxic. They can become infected. And when they get infected, that's when, that's when you start to lose your shalom in your marriage, right? And with my kids, I want to have as much shalom as, as possible, right? I mean, my, my family of origin. I want, I want a sense of wellness in those relationships. My brothers and I don't pick on each other the same way we used to. We have new creative adult ways of doing it. But, <laughs> but, they're, but, they're, but they're in fun and they're in, in love and there's a sense of healthiness. We, we tell each other we love you at least once a year, you know? We say it out loud, because we know it's important. We're, we're family. We're family. My friends. You know, well, Doug, when you stop having shalom with your friends, they're not your friends anymore. I know. I know that completely because I've lost friends. I've had people that used to be my friends and something came up and got infected and we lost our shalom and suddenly they're not my friends anymore. We're not hanging out together. There's, there's a ridge between us of, of some kind of sin or unforgiveness or a grudge. And I don't know if you've felt that loss in your life. My guess is you have. But it's very painful to think of people who you used to have a deep sense of shalom with. And it's not there now. And it's not because you moved away and your friends. It's because something happened that rubbed the wrong way and there's a, it's not resolved. I've got lots of people that I don't call them every day, but I could call them tomorrow and I haven't talked to them for three years and it'd be like we were never apart. But I also have a list of people that I can't call because they won't answer the phone. My neighbors, co-workers. I want to have shalom as much as possible with... These are people you don't get to choose, right? You don't get to choose your neighbors. You don't get to choose your co-workers. I do because I hire them, but they didn't, right? You don't get to choose. You you go to work and there they are. And so how how do we leak shalom in our neighborhoods, and how do we leak shalom to our coworkers? And how do we maintain it and experience it, and in a wholesome, rich way, invite them into it deeper? Right. Years ago, we lived in a different place than we do now, different neighborhood. And I have to make that clear because my next door neighbor now goes to church here, and if, so I don't want to make sure he heard this right. But um, we had a neighbor who who misunderstood something that our son did. And for some reason, he was involved in a different religion. He thought it was a hate crime. So he and his family hated us. And they lived right next door. And I'm, I'm not using the word hate lightly here. I mean, hate, when I found out that we had this incredible lack of absence of shalom, I don't do well with that, by the way. I mean, I feel it. I'm, I don't, I'm sensitive to when I don't have it. So I went over and I just knocked on the door, and I talked to him, and I just said, hey, can we kind of explain what happened? No, that was misunderstood, all these kinds of things. And, you know, there was a little bit of lip, lip service to it, but the door closed, and I go, that didn't go so well, right? I knew, I just knew. I went home, and we 
tried to be as friendly and smiley. You know, we did the wave every time we saw him. That's a Minnesota thing. Hey, how's it going? You know, sometimes you just use a finger when you're waving. Hello. You know, people catch it. We're subtle here in Minnesota. And everything you could be a neighbor-friendly guy. Finally, the day came when, when we found another house in another neighborhood. We didn't leave because of that relationship, but we also didn't stay because of that relationship, right? We went to the new neighborhood, and I, I, as we're reflecting on it this week, I turned to Lori and I said, you know what? That guy, I think that was the happiest day in his house. It was the day we moved away. That's how strongly I felt it. It was awful. But, but God says, hey, Doug, keep working for Shalom. Don't give up. Keep praying for it. Keep reaching out. You live in shalom and you extend it to others. Here's another zone, my church. Everything I just said about neighborhoods is true for churches, right? You don't get to choose who goes to this church. I mean, you could choose some of the next people who come to the church because you can invite them, please do. But you don't get to, you guys over here, you might not like that guy right over there. Right? There's this huge lack of shalom. Suddenly you have your seats for, you stay in yours. You stay in your, you be Saturday night, I'm Sunday morning at 11. We can't get any farther apart than that, right? And you just stay in your zone and we're okay. We can go to the same. It's, that's not how God wants. Now, we're not all going to be best buddies. We've got 500 people kind of lately coming on a weekend. Our database has 2,000 people, which means you guys come one out of every four. You take turns coming to church. Some of you come a little more frequently. Thank you. Some of you come less often. You're not here. You listen to it on the radio or something or the, t- the computer. Here's, here's the thing. This is supposed to be a place that reeks of shalom and deep relationships. Not going to be with everybody, but this is why we do small groups. We, they could be called shalom groups, right? This is a place where we want people to love and care and know each other and know and be loved. Love and be, excuse me, love and be loved and know and be known. That's what small groups are, are, are about. My authorities people over me. Do you know that some people, they go, man, I've had the worst run of luck. What do you mean? Oh, my first boss, this is what was wrong with them. My second guy, the manager I had, another job was blah, 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 blah. And then I had another boss and they did this and the next switch jobs and had another manager, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, wow, that is really a run of bad luck. And what goes through my head is if you get those four managers and bosses together, what would they say the common denominator is? <laughs> right? It's it's something in in there are some of us, and maybe all of us, have an authority problem. We, we don't like being told what to do. You know what? You're bothering my shalom. Don't tell me what to do. I'm your boss. I'm paying you. doesn't matter. I, shalom. No, that's not how it works, right? We, God says that we're supposed to follow our authorities, obey our, unless they tell us to do something immoral. We're supposed to work for them if they, for an honest day pay, honest day work kind of thing. But some of us have problems with authority. Here's the last one, and I'm, I only bring this up because Jesus did other, because I'd like not to bring it up, my enemies. Do you remember some of the things Jesus said about enemies? Lo- he didn't say, shalom, your en- love your enemies. He's, he's going, don't even hate them. Don't even, you got to love them. Don't even tolerate them. You got to love them. He could have said, shalom them. Paul picked up on what Jesus, his attitude towards the enemy, he expanded on it in Romans 12, verses 17 and 18. Here's what he said. He said, never pay back evil with more evil. Yeah, but you don't know, Paul. You don't know this guy. He's my enemy. He did this and this and this to me, right? Don't pay back evil with more evil. I'm not saying it wasn't evil, but don't pay it back. Do things in such a way that everyone, if they're looking at your life, they'll see that you're honorable. 
You know, don't sabotage him. If he's your neighbor, don't, don't get revenge. If he's a coworker, don't make it look like, you know, so you get all the credit and he looks like an idiot. Don't, don't do those things. Don't take revenge. Don't pay back evil with, with more evil. Do things in such a way that everybody will go, well, I know this much, that person's above reproach. There's this, I don't know what it is. It's like this peace emanating from them. We, we like to be with them. There's, and they don't know it's shalom, right? Do all that you can, Paul says, to live in peace with everyone. Here's what I like about that. It's an admission that we can only do what we can do. It's an admission that we're not going to have peace with everybody. It's an admission that I don't have to lose sleep at night because my neighbor was angry with me when I did everything I could and would continue to do everything I could to experience shalom with that person. We aren't going to bat a thousand when it comes to the shalom game, right? Here's how the NIV translated it. If it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live in shalom with everyone. Right? So that's the second, the second zone, shalom in my personal relationship. This, by far and large, is going to be the place where you have to invest the most, all these relationships. Let me give you the third one. It's shalom with God. It's shalom with God. Do you, do you understand that that's what God wants for you? Some of you may be here today and you go, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, the reason Jesus came, the reason he died on the cross, the reason we even follow Jesus, because God's greatest desire is for you and for me to have peace with him. And not just peace like the peace sign, but deep shalom, a deep sense of wellness with God. You know that discomfort we have with someone else when we're not right with them and in a right relationship? God goes, I don't want that with us. But we got this sin thing, sin thing going on, so Jesus died to pay for our sin, and he invites us to come to God and have a relationship with him. And it's not just a relationship like, okay, you're God and I'm... No, it's shalom, a deep sense of wellness. When we think of God, we get overwhelmed with this just... It's, we're good. There's peace in my soul. I have a deep sense of wellness about that. Peter and Paul both wrote about this. He said, Peter, first, uh, Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners, people who didn't have shalom, to bring you safely home to God. And it's not just talking about heaven, it's talking about a relationship where it's home. The place of deep wellness, the place of comfort, place of safety. Romans 5, Paul writes, therefore since we have been made right in God's sight, in other words, we're right with God, we have peace with God, we have shalom with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. This is God's dream for you. I don't know if you, ha- when you think of God right now and your relationship with God, you, you're probably feeling like, ah, something's not right. Or maybe you're saying, yes, I have this deep sense of shalom. By the way, do I always feel shalom with God? No, sometimes I don't feel God at all. But my relationship is one of shalom. Sometimes I don't have shalom because there's stuff I'm doing where I go, I know you want me to do something else, God, but I'm not doing it. I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to do it my way. He goes, really? Really? Yeah, really? <laughs> you know? And, and I fight God, because guess what? In every relationship, there's conflict. Even my relationship with God has conflict. And God goes, so Doug, let's make it healthy conflict. How do we do that? Well, you should do it my way. <laughs> that seems healthy, because he's God. God dreams of us having this peace with him. The mission of Jesus was to bring shalom with God to us. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, through Jesus, we find forgiveness. We find wellness. We find wholeness. We find hope. We find future. We don't find conflict-free lives, and we don't find easy lives. We find shalom with God lives in a world that has no righteousness and justice. And so, of course, we're going to feel torn and struggle and heart. We are his ambassadors in this world. We represent God with shalom for everyone. So this is my question. Do you know the shalom of God? And if you don't, I'm just going to tell you, he wants that for you. He wants you to know this deep, deep sense of wellness in your soul, this rightness with God, his leadership, his love in your life. This is what Jesus came for, right? Some of us are saying, yes, I understand that, shalom. Well, for those of us, will, will we work to help others discover? Will we be peacemakers? Will we spread shalom to the world? Will we help other people discover the peace of God? All right, so those are the three zones, right? This is the last one was shalom with God. Here's my question. Where do you need to make peace? Where do you need to be working for shalom? Which zone is it? I want to go through the, 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 the shaloms again, those zones, and talk about just my own life for a moment. So I have this shalom, this peace with God. Can I tell you, it started when I was 18 years old. After I graduated from high school, I, I was following God. I got on a plane. I flew to Hawaii to go to a Christian school there. It seemed like the right place to suffer for Jesus in Hawaii. And, and they didn't teach on this, but because I was doing my relationship with God. I hadn't been following God. I started following God. I wanted to get trained a little bit and, and settled in on that before going to the university. And while I was there, there was, this came across, I, I knew that what I was experiencing with God compelled me to think of some people that I had treated like dirt in high school. Right? And so I sat down and I wrote about 10, 12 letters because we didn't have email. And we didn't have texting. We had horses and buggies and um, <laughs> steamships. And I wrote these letters asking for forgiveness for treating them so poorly. And I was explicit about what I did. And I wrote and I said, I just need to ask your forgiveness. Out of those 10, 12 letters, eight of them just looked at it, I'm pretty sure, and just went, wow, Doug has gotten a little weird, you know? Put the letter down. Two of them wrote me back and said, Thank you. And yeah, I forgive you, and yet you did hurt me. The question is, why did I do that? What was, and it's because intuitively or through the Spirit, maybe, God was coaching me, and he goes, Doug, you can't settle for shalom with me. You've, you've got to take it to your relationships. You've got to fight for shalom for, for others. Right? And so there's, one is built in the other. First, we find our shalom with God, and then we bring that context into our relationship with others, and then we bring it to our, our world. And, they, and they, one sets us and prepares us for the next, and that's how it works. So my question that I promised I'd ask is where? Are there letters you need to write? Are there grudges you're holding? Do you have, first of all, do you have that peace with God that we talked about? That would be the primary question. Then think about your relationships. Is there peace that you need to work for right now? By the way, writing those letters was one of the most humbling things I've ever done. I felt embarrassed doing it. I imagined them opening it, thinking what a religious freak I had become. 
And I didn't even quote any Bible verses or anything. I just asked forgiveness, right? And said, because my walk with God, I need to do this kind of thing. Is there some place in this hurting world that you go, God is calling me to get more involved in? Righteousness and justice, love and care. This isn't my question. This is God's question for us. It's probably something we should pray about and say, God, where do I need to work for shalom today? Let's pray. God, as I think about that passage, I go, what's on the line? It's whether we get to look like your kids. We know we are your kids, but do we get to look like it, live like it, love like it? So God, I pray for those of us who are struggling just with shalom with you right now. We know it's not right, not full, not a sense of well-being. For some of us, it may mean coming to you and saying, I need forgiveness through Jesus. I need this relationship. I never had shalom with you. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And this is the day we decide to, not to might be followers, but to follow. God, for some of us, we have somebody in our relationship world, our personal sphere of influence that we know we're not right with. We, we need to call them, we need to write them, we need to text them, we need to, we need to reach out. And we're afraid to. We feel like we might look stupid. It's humbling. Or maybe we don't even want them for friends. God, help us to be agents of shalom. And then finally, God, as we walk through this world, um, help us to be like the Samaritan who could not walk by the hurt person, even though he was Jewish, without bringing shalom to that person's life and love and care. Help us to be active agents. Help us to be peacemakers. In Christ's name, amen.